Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, cat people are weird. And I, and I say that being a cat person. Mm-hmm. But uh, every day, it seems, uh, there's at least one moment where I, I look down and I see this furry, carnivorous creature with a with a face like a like a demented angel looking up <laughs> at me and and it and for at least a second i i have this sober moment where i just realize how strange the whole thing is that that here this this creature lives in my house mm-hmm. uh now exclusively in the house with just a little porch uh, on the outside of the house that she can access so that she doesn't run away or be run off by feral hordes uh, in the uh, evenings as uh, was the case a few months back mm-hmm. um but but yeah, I have this moment where I just I just realize how strange it is that we that I have this relationship with this other species, and that it and that you know you can you can go crazy and start calling it like love or friendship or, or whatever, or you can or you can strip it down to just base scientific realities, which we're going to do in this podcast. But there's this bond there, and it's it's strange, and it's yeah. and it's pretty ancient, and uh, and it's really fascinating to really pick it apart. And look at just why this relationship exists. Yeah, I've thought about this before too. Just, and I've thought about it in the way of, you know, you always hear that the Eskimos have, you know, X amount of words for the word snow because it's so important to them. Mm-hmm. And then I think about my cat Owen and the amount of nicknames that I have for him, yeah. such as the importance um, of him to me. You know, and then my husband will look at me so oddly some days when I just, you know, out of thin air, create a new nickname like, you know, sort of roused about. Um, List them off. I want to hear all of them. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, Owen Inski and the Sunshine 7. Mm-hmm. It just goes on and on and on like that. It's pure nonsense. Uh-huh. But I have thought before, to what extent am I just insane or is this cat... Uh, bringing out the insanity in me. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, us cat people and, and you dog people out there too, tune into this because I think it would be very interesting to get your insights on uh, to what degree you feel like you're being manipulated by your furry little creature. Right. I have two points I want to make. First of all, I think everybody I know um, who happens to have a cat have multiple names. And, and my wife and I, we have multiple names for ours. Given name, Biscuit, Biscuit Cat, Heath. On the official forms, but we <laughs> we call everything we're like Bosco, Bisco, Biscotti, oh, uh, Bisky B, Yardmaster B. Well, she's no longer Yardmaster B. Now she's just Housemaster B. Um, Brewski B. Which, uh, I don't know where that one came from, but you you just end up rattling off all these names, mm-hmm. and the cat doesn't know. The cat doesn't recognize its own name. It just it it works more with tone. I understand, but uh, and then the second point uh, that you made. Wait, now I forgot the second point. I got I manipulation. Got manipulation. No, there was another point. What was it? Oh, yes, cat people. Uh, if you're new to the podcast and you're thinking, oh, well, Robert, Robert and Julie, they're cat people. They're, this is their bias at play. I will point out uh, we do have an earlier episode titled, Does My Dog Really Love Me? And that one explores the bond between humans and dogs, uh, which despite the kind of snarky title is a, is a fair and balanced look at the scientific uh, bond link between uh, Canines and humans. 
Yeah, and we also talk a lot about oxytocin exchange. This is the feel-good yes. uh, hormone. And we won't talk about that so much today. Because yeah, because a lot of that's in play, and we've yeah, covered it. That's with cats and so, dogs. So yeah. we know already that it's a beneficial, yeah, mutually beneficial. Yeah, it's face looks like a baby. It's the size of a baby. Yeah. You pick it up, and all sorts of hormonal things start happening. We all snuggle with our with our cats and dogs, and we feel better for it. Yeah. And they do, too. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the stats here, because according to Scientific American, uh, in their article, the evolution of house cats. A third of American households have feline members, and more than 600 million cats live um, among humans worldwide. This brings us back to our previous episode on the bat, where we, we pointed out that the bat is arguably the most successful mammal on the planet mm-hmm. uh, when you take into account that both domestic cats and the, the rat have had a little human help in spreading. Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. indeed. So, so the cat has very much had our, our help. They're, we're partners in crime with the cats, and... and they're everywhere for it. That's true. And uh, we know this. We know that a cat is a descendant of the African wild cat and that the domestication of the cat has been uh, in the years making, uh, something up to like 12,000 years in the mm-hmm. making. Yeah, you look back on the what we can piece together about the history of humans and cats. I mean, we you, 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 can, you can look back to ancient cultures like the Egyptians. Obviously, they had a love of the domestic cat. They uh, they w- would uh, mummify the cat. We have the remains. You've seen the cute little sarcophagi uh, that uh, remain today in our museums. But uh, yeah, when we start looking at the, the fossil evidence, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, as far as we can tell, you know, cats were first uh, domesticated roughly twelve thousand years ago, and it's worth trying to remember what else was happening at that time. Mm-hmm. About twelve thousand okay. years ago, also agricultural societies were really beginning to flourish mm-hmm. in the Middle East, in the Fertile Crescent. And that's where this is happening. So we've been hanging out with dogs for a while. Humans and dogs went way back because what were we, were we doing? We were roaming around, digging stuff out of the ground. We were uh, we were chasing down animals, treeing them, pulling them down, cooking them up, throwing a few scraps to the... Uh, to the wolf-like animals that gathered on the the, uh, the outskirts of our fire. Mm-hmm. And so we had this bond with the dog because the the dog could get something from us could and could offer something in return. The cats really didn't have uh, anything in the game up until that point. But then we started growing our own food. And one of the great things, I mean, the society culture-building things about agriculture is that you're able to grow a surplus. You're able to grow enough to sustain you through the uh, through the winter months, you, you grow enough to where where food becomes uh, dominant enough mm-hmm. that you don't. Everyone doesn't have to engage in the creation of it. People can specialize in other things, and out of that, though, again, you have this surplus of food setting around. So in come the rodents, right, <laughs> to to help you with that surplus of food. There's like I see you got some some extra food there. Let me help. And then the cats come and they say the same thing, but they're talking about the rodents. They say, hey, I see you have some uh, some mice hanging out around your food. Let me eat them. And as this happens, suddenly we're living in the same space as those cats. We see that the cats are doing something that benefits us, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and a bond begins to form. Domestication yeah. begins to take hold. Which makes perfect sense because cats really are mainly solitary creatures. I mean, you, they, they do bond with humans and they do bond with other cats and sometimes dogs, mm-hmm. but they don't uh, hang out in packs as dogs do. And as you noted, a dog would, you know, follow around and have a pack mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, so once we established ourselves and, and weren't as nomadic, and yes, all of a sudden we were storing lots of grain, then that situation could uh, allow for domestication. Yeah. And this is pretty cool. Mitochondrial genetic analyses 
studies shows that domestic cats are likely descended from five mother cats from this region, the Fertile Crescent, and whose descendants were transported across the world by humans. Wow. And then in the terms... The five great mothers of cats. The cat five, cats. the mitochondrial eaves uh, <laughs> of the cat world. And uh, the earliest evidence of cat-human interaction comes from archaeological remains uh, in Cyprus dated to around 9,500 years ago. Um, and I interpret this as archaeological remains in terms of uh, depiction of. Yeah, Cyprus is pretty interesting in, in how it uh, impacts our, our ability to understand the history of our uh, relationship with cats. Uh, 1983, our archaeologists found a jawbone dating back 8,000 years. 2004, they found uh, a site about 1,500 years old that uh, that showed a human buried with a cat. And, and one of the things that's important with Cyprus is it's an island. And so the argument here is... Wild cats are not just wandering up, making boats, and traveling over. Humans are not going <laughs> right. to bring. I mean, if you've ever trapped a feral cat in a cage and seen how wild it is, you, your first thought is not, "Hey, let me take that on a little boat with me." You can take it on a boat ride and then release it uh, all the way over in Cyprus. No, it's um, it's uh, it's not something you want to to travel with. So the idea is that they brought over domesticated animals, right? Which again would be great for pest control on mm-hmm. a ship. Um, I should also point out that. Uh, in ancient Rome, uh, cats were also prized by scholars because mice are going to get into your house. Not only are they going to go after your grain, but they're going to go after your, your paperwork. They're going to go after your uh, your manuscripts, your scrolls, right? So the cat becomes prized in this society because he's going to help you protect your information, which I, I thought was pretty fascinating. Um, and I mentioned uh, Egypt already, but just to put that in uh, in sort of grisly context, a scientist uh, found a cat cemetery in Beni Hassan uh, that apparently contained 300,000 cat mummies. And, you know, they had uh, they had uh, Bastet, the Egyptian goddess of love, with the head of a cat. Um, and uh, to be convicted of killing a cat in Egypt often meant a death sentence. Wow. Which uh, wow. which reminds me, of, there was an H.P. Lovecraft story called The, the Cats of, of Ulthar, uh, where it's like a modern setting, but the cats kind of run the show and if anyone kills a cat there then uh, you meet with death but it's at the hands of the the cats it is interesting too from a cultural perspective because i was just thinking about how uh, we house cats and and give them a nice pretty place to live Mm -hmm. in other parts of the world there's roaming around like literally in rome where it's there are so many cats it's almost like they're pigeons yeah uh it's also interesting to look at the, again, that's like a relationship. You, you go back uh, to you know ancient Egypt, Middle East, Greece. Uh, people have this bond with the cat. But for a long time uh, in Europe, uh, you, during the Middle Ages, you see them um, associated with evil in the night, uh, and uh, particularly with witches. Uh, not to derail too much into witchcraft, which we hope to cover in a, uh, a little in an upcoming episode. But uh, I was reading about uh, witchcraft in England, mm-hmm. and uh, and at the time. Um, Persecuting witches in England was a little, uh, little tamer than it was on the continent because on the continent you could use all sorts of torture to get exactly the kind of ridiculous uh, story of satanic uh, intrigue that you wanted. You know, mm-hmm. it's like basically here's the script. You just torture the person until they reproduce it. But you couldn't use these methods um, uh, to the full extent in England. So the stories tended to be far less wild, mm-hmm. and uh, but and one charge in particular. Uh, found its way into a lot of the uh, the accounts, and that is that this old woman is living in this house by herself except for this strange cat. Uh. Clearly, what's going on here is the cat is her familiar, it's a demon, and she is suckling it with uh, some sort of bizarre third nipple somewhere. 
Of course. Yeah. That makes total sense. But I can't see. So it wasn't until like the. Uh, the, the, the 1600s till they really got over mm-hmm. all that in Europe. Well, I was going to say, I can see how people would look to a cat and think that it might have some sort of magical attributes to it, only because if you've ever seen a cat jump up like 10 feet in the air on, you know, some sort of surface that's maybe like, you know, two inches mm-hmm. wide, it does seem sort of like this uh, magical, crazy skill. Yeah. And uh, so I can see how the imagination would lend itself to that. They seem like they can teleport. They can, they're masters of, of stealthy movement. And uh, and all of this comes down to what are the, what are they basically designed for? What have they evolved to do? They're killing machines. They're killing machines. Yeah. Um, recently, an article came out about this, and, uh, and and I thought it was very interesting because according to George Fenwick, he's the president of American Bird Conservancy, uh, cat predation is one of the reasons why one in three American bird species are in decline. And if you have a cat that has ac- access to the outdoors, you're, you're probably familiar with this. Chances are they have brought home either a live bird or a portion of a live mm-hmm. bird or some sort of bloody trophy Offering. that may or may not have come from the insides of a bird. But the the thing is that apparently um, uh, the cats only bring home a quarter of what they kill. Mm-hmm. So they ate 30% left 49 to rot where they died. So if your animal is bringing home bloody trophies, just remember that you're only seeing part of the equation here. Yeah, um, this is really interesting too. Researchers at the University of Georgia attached something called kitty cams to 60 cats. So each owner would put a small video camera mounted on a breakaway collar on the cat in the morning and then let the cat out. And then they'd remove this camera and they would download the footage of the carnage. Really, basically a faces of death except with with some some added napping and and butt licking thrown in. Yes, I guess. Butt licking, yeah, well and that's a different kind of thing. But um, each cat's activities were recorded for seven to ten days, and the cats usually spent anywhere from like four to six hours outdoors. Uh, but the, really the most surprising thing uh, they found is that the majority of the house house cats weren't hunters and that only 44% of the cats in the study, again, house cats, uh, stalked, chased, or killed other animals during the day. And another thing they discovered is that, and they, you'll have to think about this the next time your cat cozies up to you and, and nuzzles you, um, cats were seen eating roadkill, mm-hmm. climbing down into storm drains and lapping up sewer water, and eating insects like walking sticks and earthworms. Well, the the, the bug eating doesn't bother me. So that much. doesn't so much either. I think it's it's probably more the roadkill. Um, and certainly the the risky behavior, you know, because because yeah. and I, I say this is you know the cat that we have, uh, Biscuit, wandered up to us as like a an outdoor previously owned animal. And then was outdoor for a little bit, then indoor outdoor for a long time, and then we moved uh, to an area where there was a, a feral pack nearby, and she's mm-hmm. getting kind of kind of up there. And the, the best theory that we have is that uh, it came to the point where she couldn't defend her turf anymore. Yeah. The the young, uh, you know, criminal element came around, and they said, "Hey, this is our turf now." And she's like, "All right, that's cool. I'll find some more humans, I guess." And so we had to find her, bring her back, and now she's indoor. But uh, but yeah, just to to, to know. All the dangers that this animal that you have this bond with can encounter during the day in an outdoor environment, particularly in a, an urban environment. Yeah, and a um, lot of this was caught on camera, so yeah. they could say, "Yeah, cats do actually engage in risky behavior." Yeah, I mean, usually the, younger ones. Yeah, and the other side, because I know this becomes an argument between cat owners. You know, the whole outdoor versus indoor outdoor scenario. I mean, the, the other side is that yes, an indoor cat is safer, mm-hmm. but 
they they spend six to, the indoor outdoor ones spend six to eight hours outdoor because they love it. That's what they've evolved to do. They've evolved to live in an outdoor environment, eating varmints, not living in a living room, chasing balls and listening to whistles and you know and eating all day. So it's 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 weird. We find this is what happens when humans uh, manipulate the course of nature. We find ourselves in in uh, in some strange and not particularly satisfying places. You know, Holly Fry of Pop Stuff is our resident cat expert. Oh, did she like cats? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't noticed. That's a joke. Um, yeah, yeah, she's she's the one. She's got the library. Yeah, we all come to her with our. We do our cat all our, all our cat questions and problems. She will answer them. Um, but she had told me that this is interesting. That in feral cat colonies, that they actually work in concert, almost like a pack together, mm-hmm. and that they will take turns uh, in groups, both sleeping in different places and hunting. So they'll share a particular space, whether or not they're using it to hunt or to sleep in together, which shows a level of cooperation I didn't realize uh, was actually in cats. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the feral situation is... So it's a whole topic unto itself because then we, we you know, it's like do you, we want to control that in, that population because it's an invasive species. It's killing all of these birds and, and chipmunks and what have you um, and uh, and potentially endangering domestic cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't necessarily know what kind of, of uh, diseases the, the feral pack is, is carrying and potentially, in, in, you know, in getting involved with your cats. Uh, but then you, you, you get into arguments, all right, to, to what extent – can you actually uh, do a spay and neuter program? You, you're never going to get 100% penetration no, right. with one of those pro- programs. But then again, if you just go in and wholesale exterminate stray cats, other f- ferals are going to move into the area anyway. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it, again, humans start messing with the the natural uh, swing of things, and, th- and everything gets messy pretty quickly. It does. It does. Um, well, let's talk about uh, their anatomy. That how what uh, makes them such stealthy killers. Yes. One of the things I thought was really interesting is that 26 of their 244 bones reside in their tails. And this is actually what allows them to have the sort of crazy balancing powers that they have um, and the movement powers. And they also have a detached clavicle, which Whoa. allows a cat's shoulders to move back and forth in rhythm with its legs and kind of squeeze through the, the spaces that they do. And cats can feel vibrations on the ground with their paws, which alerts them to, poten- to potential prey. Yeah, you, you you get a taste of that whenever you, you have like a blanket out and mm-hmm. the, the cat is walking across mm-hmm. it. You know, you can tell how tenderly they're walking and how, how closely they're uh, analyzing the, the tension of the surface underneath. You know, they're... they're or, yeah, if you have a toddler tearing down the hallway, mm-hmm. you know, the, another room away, you can automatically look at the cat, and the cat will sense it first. <laughs> uh, whether or not you can hear it, it's really interesting. Um, the, another thing about them is their whiskers are rooted really deeply into their face, and that's an area that's rich in nerves and blood vessels. And these whiskers are so sensitive that they can detect the slightest directional change in the wind. And, of course, uh, and of course, they also have excellent hearing, uh, mm-hmm. if you've ever... If, You've ever watched a cat just sitting there, like even when they appear to be kind of asleep, and they're not completely asleep. Their ears are very active. There's a sound uh, on the other side of the house, and you'll see their their ears sort of listen to that. There's something going on outside. They're kind of half listening to that as well. So yeah, they kind of move slowly, like a little satellite dish. Yeah. That's what I've noticed. Um, and then another really cool aspect of cats, I think, is just the mechanics of their purr boxes. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's thought that the 
laryngeal muscles are responsible for the opening and closing of the glottis, and this is the space between the vocal cords. And this results in a separation of the vocal cords, producing the purr sound. And then purring is really unique in that it's a result of both the inhalation as well as the exhalation, as opposed to a cat just meowing and using the exhalation. So there are a number of different theories as to why they purr. It's, it's one of these behavioral questions that we're still figuring out an answer to. Uh, veterinarians generally suggest that purring on a basic level, especially between a kitten and its mom, is saying, hey, I, hey, mom, it's me, I'm all right, I am here, and it's also a part of their bonding mechanism. Yeah. But obviously there's something else going on, or there's more going on in other situations. Uh, for instance, when cats purr mm-hmm. to their humans. What's that about, right? Well, yeah, but here's the interesting thing, too, is that um, – Dr. Elizabeth von Mugenthaler has suggested that the purr with its low frequency vibrations is a natural healing mechanism. Ah, yes. So sometimes you hear a cat purr when it, it is injured mm-hmm. or, or very upset, as you know, as well as, you know, when you're petting it and it's experiencing some sort of pleasure from that. But um, it's interesting that she says that purring may be linked to the strengthening and repairing of bones, relief of pain, and wound healing. And that made me think about some of the studies that we've seen before concerning meditation and chanting and the vibration oh, yeah. actually in the throat. It's throat basically being an very ohm. healing, yeah, yeah um, for the body. And a lot of that, though, has to do more with inflammation and mucus. Uh, but I thought that was sort of an interesting detail. Yeah. But I think that when you're talking about purring, you're talking about um, the ways in which we can, well, cats can manipulate us. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about mimicry. So I don't, have you ever heard a cat like mimic uh, a bird? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, to, to the extent that it sounds like a bird, that, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not all that convinced, but certainly they have a particular sound in the same way that there's a, they make a certain sound when they're encountering cats that they probably don't like, which generally is all of them. You know, it's like an kind of a thing. Yeah. But then there's that noise that they make when they see a cat, generally through the window. Uh, you know, generally a yeah. situation where they can't get to the cat. I mean, they can't get to the bird. And so they're just sitting there watching it, getting a little agitated and excited, and then they start going. Yeah, it's so odd because those vocalizations really do sound bird-like. And my mm-hmm. cat will just kind of smush his face up to the window and do that and just look, you know, apoplectic. I mean, he looks like he's <laughs> about to go nuts. But uh, I thought it was a, really a, a cool uh, mimicry bit of piece of information here in this 2010 Live Science article. They reported that a wild cat species in the Amazon imitates a call of its in- intended victim, which is a small squirrel-sized monkey known as a pied tamarind. They're super cute if you've ever seen them before. But they're tasty as well. I'm sure they are. Cute and tasty to a cat. Um, so when the cat mimics the monkey's call, the tamarinds are then compelled to come out, of, come down out of their trees and investigate because it's like, what's that familiar yet unfamiliar voice I hear? And then when they do that, of course, the cat pounces. <laughs> I thought that was a little bit frightening. But it's the, the, the key here, though, is to, is to think of that power and that ability as, as we try to understand cats' interactions with humans, they, they, there is this, uh, this inborn ability to mimic prey. To what extent are they using that mimicry, mimicry power to hack the human beings that um, presumably own them? All right. Well, let's ponder that for a moment, take a quick break, and then when we get back, we will see to what extent they are manipulating us. All right. We're back. Um just to, to uh, rewind just a little bit, uh, real quick, uh, we were talking about purring and its healative properties. 
Uh, if you are into poetry or you're just into cats, uh, check out a poem by Coleman Barks titled Purring. This was featured uh, September 29, 2008 on uh, Garrison Keillor's The Writer's Almanac. And it's a really beautiful poem that equates purring with poetry and uh, and, and talks a little bit about the science. I can't read the whole thing. I'll link to it in the blog post. But there's a great, uh, great little section um, where uh, the poet uh, says, Here's something I have never heard. A feline purrs in two conditions, when deeply content and when mortally wounded, to calm themselves, readying for the death opening, which I, I just find kind of kind of beautiful. And and I also, I have to admit, when my own cat was lost, I would I read that poem, and that kind of gave me a little bit of, of solace, because I, I thought she wasn't going to come back. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I thought to myself, well, if something has happened to her, and she is injured, and she's you know on her last day out there somewhere then then she's purring you know oh yeah man oh okay um yeah i well i think that's the that's the thing that uh about purring it is it, it is so comforting on that level if you've mm-hmm. ever heard a cat purr and especially if you're 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 petting the cat it is there's something about it that just makes you feel like you're warm you know in a nice warm quilt on a winter's day yeah. with a mug of hot chocolate. I sound so much like a crazy cat lady right now, so I'm <laughs> going to acknowledge that. Uh, there's some, I forget who it is. I want to say it was like Kid Koala or somebody. There's a, a musician who used some, some purring noises in uh, one of his tracks, and it, it's like a really soothing kind of ambient track, and suddenly there's this kind of purring noise in the background. Well, that's the thing about it. Um, it there is a level of manipulation behind it that, that's making you feel all, uh, you know, kitten farts and rainbows. Researcher Karen McComb documented something called a solicitation purr. Yeah. Now, this is apparently the purring that occurs first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, to put you in my situation, I'm waking up, and it, or I'm not be- only beginning to wake up. The cat believes it's definitely time to wake up. So it's like five or something. And, uh, and she'll come, and she'll want to, A, walk on my pillow, which is the one place i mean she she doesn't walk on the the kitchen cabinets and the, the and the kitchen and the cutting boards and all that thank goodness but but aside from that the one area that i'm like this is my place please don't sit here <laughs> with your your paws that have been god knows where my pillow this is where on my head kill. goes yeah, yeah just leave this place sacred to the humans but first thing in the morning of course she's walking on that pillow purring and wants to sit right next to my head and uh, it this and this is the solicitation purring, and mm-hmm. it's apparently it's like an alarm clock. It's not the the you know some people have cats that'll be a little more aggressive that'll like do a little swiping of the face to wake them up in the morning, but uh, but this is basically the cat trying to wake you up with uh, with, with a more subtle means. Yeah, it's it's funny though that kind of purr has a lot going on behind it. Yeah, and, and it's different from any other purrs that you're going to encounter. Yeah, the day. actually, technically, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, McComb says that it's produced with a low fundamental frequency in its harmonics by muscular activation, but then also voices a cry, she says, probably with the inner edges of the vocal cords, which is then superimposed on the sound's frequency spectrum. And she says that cats have just about the right size of vocal folds to produce a cry that is similar to a baby's. So there is a coincidental element, she says, to this. And she said, in fact, the meow can sound remarkably like a crying child, which actually is true. Mm -hmm. Um, Different from the purr, of course. But she's saying that they might have, uh, there's there's this idea that there's sort of natural selection in play that... uh, is creating these sounds emanating from the cat. In other words, it would behoove them to 
just put a slight bit of a cry behind a purr that's nearly, you know, perceptible to, in order to get you up to feed them. Yeah, it's kind of like a, it's almost like a backhanded compliment or something where somebody's like saying something really sweet. It's just not a backhanded compliment, but where someone's saying something really sweet but with an agenda, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, uh, like, oh, you're, you're so great, honey, especially when you, uh, you know, fix me coffee. Could you get me some coffee? That kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, this is fascinating because the meow, obviously, like, I can definitely see that. Like, because the cat will meow and it's either really sweet or it's really irritating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can definitely equate that with a, with a baby's scream. But the purr, it's like uh, the, the purr with this hidden agenda of, uh, of infant mimicry. It's kind of like the, the medicine with the jam on top of it to soothe it going down. Because because when the when the cat's purring next to my head in the morning, I may be irritated about the pillow sitting, but I'm not irritated about the purring because the purring is soothing. But but subconsciously, it's waking me up. I know, isn't that that's an amazing ability, right? Yeah. To both soothe you, but also to get you to get up and get them food. Yeah. Also speaking of meow and meowing, <laughs> there's a there's a 202 Cornell uh, University study, and they they were looking at like a hundred different vo- vocalizations from 12 cats and. And again, if you live with a cat, you know they have varying ways of saying things. They, it's not language by any means, but their 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 uh, their pitch, their tone, the, the way they they stress the meow changes. And they and they found uh, in this study particularly that uh, on one hand you had the more pleasant, less demanding meows. And these tend to be shorter. Uh, with the energy spread evenly through the high and low frequency. The sounds start high and they go low. So like, this would be like meow. 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 Okay. Meow. So start with a big me, little <laughs> O. Meow. All right. And then there's the uh, the the other side of the cone cone. These are the urgent, less pleasant. And these are these tend to be longer mm-hmm. and they stress the ow over the me. And they're uh, with more energy in the lower frequency. So it's more like meow. Or as my cat does. Exactly. So there you go. So just a, that's just a, a simple look at how meows can change. And, of course, they change greatly. Like, like I, I imagine you found that with your cat, there also there's also this, like, pathetic version of the meow. Yeah. It'll happen, like, like if you try and put them in a bathtub or something. <laughs> yeah, but any sort of water yeah. is not that will elicit crazy cat calls. Um, but I did want to mention, too, that that study had 28 volunteers and some of whom I believe didn't even own cats mm-hmm. and they were able to pick out these or, or rather uh, match these sort of, I guess you'd say psychological states with these different kinds of meows. Yeah, which underlines that it's not just a thing where crazy person living with a cat has is, is reading a lot into what's going on that's not there. No, it's that this species has learned to game the human system. It's learned how to manipulate us. And it's, and it's pretty fascinating. Uh, that being said, there there are a lot of studies out there about cats and cat ownership, some more interesting than others, some more impactful than others. We ran across one that was talking about gender roles, and, and there were some interesting statistical data that's in there about how uh, women tend to attach more to their cats than men do. Mm-hmm. And, then there, and then there's a – I don't know. It's, it's interesting, but it's more just statistical. It's more about – feels like it's more about the humans than about the cats. So – yeah, and it's hard to say because they didn't necessarily look at the data and say, is this because, is this a nurture versus nature thing? Like women tend to be more nurturing 
because this is the the role that they take in society, and therefore they're going to connect with the cat more. Yeah, I mean, cats love the ladies, and Lord knows the ladies love cats, but there's not really much more. You All can right, say well, about let's talk about those ladies that love cats, uh, the men and the ladies who love cats, and let's uh, let's do a little versus dog people. Oh yes, yes, this is the classic rivalry: dog people versus cat people. Um, and and it, you see it like in any workplace. In this workplace, for instance, you definitely have the cat people. Mm-hmm. It's like you, me, Holly, Tracy. Not sure who else offhand, but then then they're the dog people. Like Josh and Chuck, they're both dog people. Died in the wool, hardcore, horrible dog people. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, not. no, and then uh, uh, my own editor uh, that, that we both work closely with, Allison Laddermilk, mm-hmm. very much a dog person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but is there anything? Is is there really something different about us as people, or is it with our personalities? Or, yeah, is, it, okay. is our personalities different, or is it just the fact that some people have a dog, some people have a cat? Again, a ton of studies about this. I tend to think that, you know, making generalized, uh, you know, sweeping generalizations <laughs> about people's personalities and their pets is kind of a little bit nuts. But I think it does bear talking about uh, a study. This is from the Psychology uh, Today article, Personality Differences Between Cat and Don- Dog Owners. They talked about uh, Sam Gosling, who is a psychologist at the University of Texas in Austin. He conducted a web-based study. Now, we're talking about more than 4,000 people responding to this study, asking whether they were dog people, cat people, neither or both. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same group was then given 44 uh, a 44-item assessment, and um, this measures them on what they call the big five personality dimensions that psychologists often use to study personalities. Okay. Now you want to know the results, right? Yes. Okay. The results show that dog people were generally about 15% more extroverted and 13% more agreeable. Those aren't huge numbers, by the way, 15 and 13%, both of which dimensions are associated with social orientation. In addition, dog people were 11% more conscientious than cat people, and conscientious meaning that they had a tendency to show self-discipline and to complete tasks and aim for achievement. Um this trait also shows a preference for planned rather than spontaneous behavior. You know, the thing that really drives drives home here, though, is that owning a cat and owning a dog are two totally different things. And certainly, if you have if you owned a cat and you're thinking about owning a dog, be aware of that because it is a it is a very different obligation. Cats, dogs are more social animals, mm-hmm. which which can lead to. And in a way, a deeper bond with that dog, but there comes with that a lot of responsibilities and, and, and a lot of socialization that has to take place. So you have a dog, you're having, you need to take that dog out and it needs to go on walks. Mm-hmm. It needs to encounter other humans. It needs to encounter other dogs. It needs to encounter other dogs and humans at the same time. So there's a, there's a lot of socialization that's occurring with the dog. And I feel like there's a lot of forced socialization that is, that is coming with being a responsible dog owner. Yeah, I was about to say, there's going to be a level of extroversion that you're going to engage in. I mean, just take a look at any local dog park and you will see this, right? Yeah. So Dogs I've, want to meet new people, right. meet new dogs, sniff new butts. That's just what they do. Meanwhile, the cats are a different thing altogether. The cats are very much, I'd rather not meet new people, certainly no more than one or two at a time. <laughs> yeah. I do not want to meet not another small cat. Children. Yeah, do not bring a kitten around here mm-hmm. or I'm going to flip. It, it's a, it's a, and they're, they're a little more, you, you're going out of town for a weekend. You might have somebody come and check in on the cat or the cats. That's cool. But the dog, you're get, generally you're going to have to board that, that creature or you're going to have to take it with you or you're going to have to arrange for somebody to, to really dog set hardcore for it. There, it's a little more of a, a hands-on engagement. So I wonder to what ex- 
this study seems to argue that different types of people gravitate towards one animal or the other, but I feel like it's just as much ownership of and relationship with that creature molds the person. Are you saying it's the tail wagging the dog? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, it mentions the whole, being more task and goal-oriented or mm-hmm. whatnot when, when you're a dog owner. You have to be. Otherwise, you're going to have a horrible, horrible dog. Okay, well, let's talk about cat people, what's happening with them. Uh, all right, so they are about 12% more neurotic. Uh, however, <laughs> however, they were also 11% more open than dog people. And the openness trait involves a general appreciation for art, emotion, adventure, and unusual <laughs> ideas, imagination, curiosity, curiosity, and a variety of experience. And then people with high scores on openness, of course, we know this already, are more likely to hold unconventional beliefs, while people with low scores on openness, and, and they say in parentheses, dog people, tend to have more conventional, traditional interests. I think part of, like, and this is me just reading into stuff, but, but maybe to be a cat owner, you have to sort of create a lot of ideas. You have to, you, there's a lot more mystery with the cat to read into. Like, why doesn't the cat want to hang out with me? What's it, what's it doing in the next room? Why is it talking <laughs> at the wall? You know? Whereas, so now it's the, the tail wagging the, the cat. Well, I think on a very basic level, cats are harder to understand than dogs. Mm-hmm. They're harder to, to train, certainly, because the dog is a social animal, so there are a number of, of ways to mold the dog based on its social interactions and its, its, uh, its natural um, need for a social order and you know a, a dominant mm-hmm. male, um, alpha male figure in its environment, that kind of thing, whereas the cat doesn't have that. So you, know, you, you want to train up a, a dog, great, you can call up a, a dog whisperer you know, or take the dog to a dog academy. That for the most, I think there's somebody that calls himself the cat whisperer, for, but for the most part, there is no cat whisperer, and there there are no, for the most part, you, there are other no than places Holly, to, other than Holly, and there are no cat academies really to take take the cat to. I mean, cats are, and I'm generalizing, cats are more of a mystery than dogs. Now, Holly says that they can be trained through clicker training. I you saw that book when, on her desk. Yeah, yes. you have to do it when they're younger, though, of course. Yeah, um, and then many many treats are involved, <laughs> which makes sense because again, the cat's just gaming you. Yeah. Um, all right, so th- again, I think of these things more as sweeping generalizations, but oh, it's yes, interesting totally. to talk about. And uh, this, of course, leads us, all roads lead us to where do cats really reside in this world? Like, where's the one place where they are front and center? Because otherwise, oh, yes. they're they're behind closed doors. We don't see them much, right? Yes, cats basically own the Internet. Mm-hmm. They're just everywhere. Like, every other YouTube is a, is a cat clip. Cats attacking bags, cats looking weird, cats sounding weird, cats being good, cats being bad, cats looking like Hitler. It's you could just go on and on. It's oh, like yeah, an endless generation like of memes that are, are, that that are arise. You have internet superstars that are felines. Mm-hmm. Like it's uh, I think it's Maru, the Japanese cat that's adorable looking. There's a there's a grumpy cat that's uh, that's suddenly a big hit that looks like a grumpy human. It's well, there's LOL cats, and of oh, course yes. the whole, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, yeah, actually Wired Magazine, uh, Wired.com, has a great article about everything cat internet uh, and cat culture internet that you could ever want to know about. Uh, the article is called Online Cat Industrial Complex. Yeah, we will link to that in the blog post that accompanies this episode, and there's a lot of great info in there. I've, I've, they mentioned Maru quite a bit. But the really amazing thing that, that really feels on target with uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is the Google X Lab. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is great because what they are trying to do is to create a concept of a thing 
for a brain simulation project. And what did they do? And what is the, what is the one thing on the internet that's a simple concept that there's a ton of data on? Cats, of course. Cats. So the researchers uh, fed 10 million random YouTube stills into a brain simulation, and then this silicon cortex quickly, really, really quickly, developed the concept of a cat. And this is amazing. Because basically a machine is given the chance to learn what humanity is about Mm -hmm. through its YouTube use. And the first thing they come up with is cats. So so I like to imagine, again, we've talked about the Internet as this complete – collection of world knowledge and in a sense the internet as human culture like yeah. th- in in a way that in a, in a way that is not only an outpouring of who we are but it is who we are and conceivably you can imagine an alien civilization encountering this internet maybe we're still around maybe we're not maybe we've uh, become something else entirely but they encounter this internet this vast sea of data about who we are and mm-hmm. they're like what is all this chaos let's uh, let's start rooting this out so they they send something in or they, they, they analyze it with their alien uh, data analysis ray. And the first thing they come up with is like, well, first of all, there are these things called cats. We assume these are the masters. <laughs> yeah. the, this is apparently the dominant species. And then there is a, a secondary species, a, a primate species called the human. And as best we can tell from YouTube clips, they um, occasionally hit each other in the groin with, uh, with, with, uh, with softball bats. Generally, it's the the larval humans that, that do this. Mm-hmm. They feed the cat masters, they look after them, and then they um, they have a lot of sex. Yeah, they, they like to yeah. knock boots a lot, mm-hmm. and they like to watch it. Yes. Right. But mostly they serve their masters, the felines. Right. They yeah. just do the, the knocking boots on the side. We, we don't know why they're obsessed with it, but they must have only done that. Yes. And then punched each other in odd places. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's, it's fascinating to think of that in terms of to what extent? To what extent are we just super obsessed with cats, and uh, and, and what will future civilization make of it? Um, in closing, I, I mentioned the story of the, the cats of Ulthar by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and uh, and I'm just going to read just a quick ex- excerpt from that. It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat, and this I can verily believe as I gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire, for the cat is cryptic and close to strange things which men cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptus, the bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Miore and Ophir. He is the kin of the jungle's lords, an heir to the secrets of Ori and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language, but he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. That, my friend, was the cat's pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's call the robot over here and see if we have a quick listener mail to run through. Here's a quick one from Jeff. Jeff writes in and says, Hi, just listen to your episode, Three Minutes Till Impact. I used to work for an airline, but I stayed on the ground. I'm kind of afraid of flying. I worked with the tiny 50- to 70-seater jets. Once, I checked with the flight crew to see if they were ready to board, but really had to use the bathroom, but couldn't wait the 30 minutes uh, to an hour for the plane to leave because I drink a lot of coffee. So I used the lab. It was stationary, the engine was off, and the airplane door was open. And still, I, I had the same reaction uh, when I break down and use the bathroom on a plane in flight. I had to push. I guess you could describe it uh, as the whiz willies from hell. <laughs> okay. Uh, great show, and my mind gets blown on a regular basis, Jeff. So there All you go. Right, cool. So uh, whiz willies induced by fear of flying. I just uh, I found that 
strange and interesting. Hey, so, the mind-body connection, yeah. right? There, there you go. Uh, so on that note, if you have something you would like to share with us, um, particularly uh, you cat people and dog people out there, if you have thoughts on the human-cat relationship, if you have some personal experiences, and I know you do, related to uh, cat vocalization and cat manipulation of their human servant slash masters, then uh, let us know about it. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr. We are stuffed to blow your mind on both of those uh, pages. And you can also find us on Twitter where we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 